And please pray, please pray with me. Uh, Lord, it is always the case uh, that uh, your word is um, too much, uh, you know, to be merely the stuff of a human being sitting down and sorting it out and then, um, you know, conveying what they've learned to a congregation. It's always the case. It's an, I'm insufficient for that. Uh, but you are not insufficient for it. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and uh, work through the preaching? Uh, would you come uh, and dwell not only among us, but in us, that this preached word would be applied to the heart, um, that it would do within us that which only you can do, that you would sanctify, and if it is your will, that you would save. Uh, Lord, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, and for the good of this city and indeed the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the great uh, American theologian, Yogi Berra, <laughs> once said, if you don't know where you're going, you will wind up someplace else. <laughs> and we've been in this Gospel of Mark for some time, and this is a gospel that knows where it's going. Um, it's a gospel that has a very strong sense, of course all the gospels do, but, but this one in particular has a sense of momentum, a sense of taking you somewhere. It is fast-paced. The word immediately occurs in this gospel over 40 times. And that's reflected really in the activity of Jesus and his disciples, you know, where they go from town to town, where they go from region to region. I, I don't know how many times they've zipped across the sea in the boat, you know, together. But, you know, here we're really at the, at the halfway point of the gospel, and it transitions from kind of this uh, narrative of running around to, to really slowing down. Uh, Jesus is described here not as taking the disciples, you know, across the sea to this town or to that region or to this place, but he is described as being with his disciples on the way. They're on the way. Uh, you might remember that in the book of Acts, you know, the first Christians were called people of the way. Um, you know, that there is a way of being. This is more about being together, um, seeing what Jesus is putting before them. And so the, the, the issue is in this narrative is not so much one of pace as it is of perception. What are you, what are you seeing? What are you understanding about Jesus? Uh, we looked last week at four little vignettes that precede this passage in which Jesus is showing his people the kind of king he is. Uh, and, and again and again, you know, whether because of dullness or defiance, they can't quite see it, not clearly anyway. And, and, and nothing captures that quite as clearly as the story of the blind man that just came before this, where Jesus, you know, goes to the blind man, he lays his hands on him to heal him. Uh, he actually doesn't just do that, he spits on his eyes. Uh, and then he does something he's never done before. He asks the man, you know, can you see? He, he wants to see if the healing is kind of taken. And actually, it hasn't, not completely anyway. The man says, you know, I can see, but not clearly. Uh, his blindness, it turns out, is, is kind of a stubborn thing. It takes a little more. J Jesus has to go back over that procedure again in order that his eyes would be open and that he would see. So his blindness is stubborn, but here's the critical thing. Jesus is stubborn. Uh, he persists with the man to make sure that he'll see clearly. And that really ends the first half of Mark, and, and that first whole section, you know, I think can be summed up with that question that he put to the blind man, can you see? 
Can you see Jesus? Can you see him for who he really and truly is? And, and even as that question continues to be central to the gospel, you know, from here on, it won't be so much a question that drives us forward as much as an assertion. And the assertion is, uh, Jesus is the king. Uh, we're going to look at that this morning with really just two things in mind. First, the identity of the king, and secondly, what it means to identify with the king. Uh, and Jesus begins with a question, with a question for his disciples, and the question is just this, who do people say I am? And they speak up and they say, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And you know, that's not bad. Jesus is polling well. He He's mentioned in the same breath with some of the greats. John the Baptist, we're told, is the greatest prophet that ever lived. There's Elijah, you know, other biblical prophets. But, you know, Jesus' response to that is not, wow, really? Elijah? It's awesome. Who'd have thought? No, instead, he persists with a question. He, he presses in to them, and he goes, okay, well, that's what they say. Who do you say I am? And Peter steps up to the front of the class, and he says, you are the Christ. That's an incredible answer. That is an answer that's got a lot going for it. Uh, unlike John Q. Public, Peter doesn't think of Jesus as one more of God's messengers in a long line of messengers. Uh, he sees him for who he truly is. He says, you're the Christ. Now, now, we need to be clear, we, you know, the word Jesus Christ is thrown around, you know, that name is thrown around a lot, and it's become so familiar that you might think, you know, Christ is his last name. Well, it's not. It's a title. Uh, it's a title that, that, that means anointed one. And so when, when Peter steps up and says, you're the Christ, he's saying, you're the king. You're the anointed one. Kingship was conferred upon one at their coronation by this act of anointing oil on the head. But, but critically, he doesn't say you're an anointed one. He says you're the anointed one. You're the Christ, the King, the Messiah. Lots of kings, lots of people have had oil put on their heads and have been, you know, coronated as king. There's been lots of kings, but there's only one Christ. So Peter sees Jesus in the same way, he doesn't just see them as one more prophet in the long line of prophets. He doesn't see him as one more king in a long line of kings. He sees him as the king. You might say the king of kings. And yet, incredible as that answer is from Peter, Jesus' response is more incredible still. And we need to pay attention to kind of the nature of this interaction. Because on the one hand, Jesus accepts the answer as if to say, you have answered correctly, Peter. That, I am who you say I am. And at the same time, even, even you know, right on the heels of accepting the answer, he also corrects it. And that, that little interaction is important, and it's important for this reason, because it's possible to affirm true things about Jesus, to say, yeah, he's the Christ, without embracing the totality of truth about Jesus, the whole truth, the most important things about Jesus. You know, it, and again, the public isn't wrong. Their answer is right. Jesus actually is a prophet. Uh, he is that, but he's far more than that. So, you know, the critical question is, what do you mean when you say I'm the Christ? What's your understanding of that? So Jesus presses in again with that question, 
to ask just that. Who do you say I am? What's your understanding? And, and we see that, in fact, Peter's a lot like the blind man. He sees, but not clearly. Um, and, and because it's so vital to see Jesus clearly, uh, Jesus doesn't praise Peter's answer, but he strictly charges him and the other disciples to tell no one, not because he doesn't want people to know that he's the Christ, but because they don't have an adequate apprehension of what it means that he's the Christ, not yet anyway. So Jesus accepts Peter's answer in part, but he corrects Peter's apprehension, uh, his apprehension of him. It, it is if to, as if to say, I am the king, but I'm not the kind of king you've got in mind. And so he goes on, and, and here's how he corrects the apprehension. He teaches them about the kind of king he is. He tells them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, you would be hard-pressed, in fact, I will defy you to find a denser verse of Scripture anywhere in the Bible than that. That's as dense as it gets. We could go weeks and months on that verse and preach every week, but, you know, I, I just, we won't do that. Um, but I, I, I want to notice something first, that Jesus refers to himself here in this answer uh, with another title. Uh, not Christ, not Messiah, but Son of Man. Um, this is a title derived from Daniel 7, uh, where God says he'll send one like a Son of Man, uh, as a human being, but unlike any other human being ever. Because, as, Daniel, as it says in Daniel 7, this Son of Man will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And, and it's what Jesus says about the Son of Man that comes as, you know, a shock. He says, that son of man, that Daniel son of man, the one we, I just read, told you about, must suffer, be rejected, and killed. Now, to, that, that is beyond a shock to those he was speaking to. It's an affront. Uh, not only a front, uh, it would be nonsense in their ears. Uh, for this reason, you know, how do you get dominion and glory and kingdom, all the Daniel 7 stuff, and suffer and die? Uh, victorious kings don't suffer and they don't die. They win. Uh, evil isn't thwarted by death. Kingdoms aren't established in suffering. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's always a curious thing to me when we're in a presidential election season. Thank, thank goodness we're not right now. Um, but, you know, I mean, you get this field of candidates, you know, all these marginal people. Uh, but, but no matter how marginal they may be, they always uh, speak during their candidacy in this way. When I become president, you know, um, no one ever says, you know, I, I realize I'm back of the pack, you know, hopefully I'll get elected. You know, the poll, I'm not polling well. Hopefully that'll turn around. The polls are showing I'm behind, you know, but it's unlikely. You know, why don't they speak that way? They speak with certainty. They say, you know, when I become president, um, you know, <laughs> they speak that way. They speak as winners because we love a winner. Um, Jesus doesn't speak that way. 
And, and, and it would be one thing to say, look, guys, just so you know, the Romans are, are, are rough. The religious establishment is rough. Um, odds are, you know, I'm going to pay a price for my ministry. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't say, you know, the powers aligned against me are so intense. You know, I just want you to know it's probably going to result in suffering. It may even get me killed. He, he doesn't say, I might suffer. He says, I must. He doesn't speak in terms of probability. He speaks in terms of purpose. Uh, the suffering and dying of the Messiah, it turns out, is at the very heart of God's plan for salvation. And Peter doesn't like this one bit. He pulls Jesus aside, I mean, possibly physically pulls him aside, and begins to rebuke him. And, you know, the language here is, is intense. This is finger in the chest, cussing him out, repudiating everything that Jesus has just said. And just to get a sense of the intensity of it, the last time this actual word rebuke occurred in the, in the Gospel of Mark was, what, was to describe what Jesus was doing to demons. Peter absolutely hates what Jesus has just said. And, and I suspect, in part, he hates it because of the, that sense of purpose. Because Jesus has said not he might suffer and might be killed, but that he must you know, that this is non-negotiable, that this is, for him and his saving mission, for his kingship and his kingdom, an absolute necessity. And, you know, that's what has got Peter as upset as anything. Like, there's got to be another way. And look, I don't know about you, but I kind of relate to that. I like options. I, I like to go to a restaurant and have choices and not have a waiter show up and go, you're having the meatloaf tonight with a Diet Coke. I like, you know, words like must don't go down well with me and certainly don't go down well with people in our culture, do they? We like choices. Have you ever gotten an Evite? I mean, here's the funny thing about Evites to me. Evites don't come with two options. You know, like I'm coming to your party or I'm not coming to your party. Evites come with three options. You know what the third option is? Maybe. Maybe I'll come to your party. Like, I know you went to Costco, and I know you're cleaning your house, and you're getting everything ready for all the guests, and you, you kind of need to have a sense of who might come. But for me, it's a maybe. If I've got time, I, I need my choices. I like options. You know, let's for setting aside relational commitment commitment for a minute, which is a disaster in our culture, we cannot even muster sufficient level of commitment in this culture to say whether we will show up at your party. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I like my options. And yet, you know, with all that said, man, we need certainty, don't we? We long for certainty. Um, we long for it relationally. We long for it in all kinds of ways. You know, no one wants to get on a plane and ask the flight attendant, when do we arrive? And, you know, hear them say, well, 4.15, assuming we make it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And no one, you know, no one wants to stand at the altar and, you know, hear the vows and then hear the person you're marrying go, yeah, sure. <laughs> Hopefully. You want the I do. Jesus' saving mission is construed in terms of certainty. Not in terms of possibility, but in terms of purpose. That is good news. 
He must save. He will save. There is no maybe about it. But he does that in such a way where he says, I must suffer and I must be killed. You know, put, it, put another way, if he doesn't suffer, if he doesn't die, if he's not raised from the dead, there will be no salvation. No end of evil. No making things the way they should have been before everything was bruised and broken by the fall. So that presents us with the question of why. Why is it like that? Why does it have to be like this? Well, Jesus must suffer and must die and must be raised again from the dead because sin is a certainty and people must be forgiven, must be reconciled. In April of 2016, Prince died unexpectedly, age of 57. Uh, in the earlier part of his career, you know, Prince was kind of the original um, explicit musician. I mean, he, he probably single-handedly was responsible for the little warning stickers that they put on, you know, albums, or, or at least used to. Um, but, but what's not as well known about Prince is that later in, in his life, he actually had a religious conversion, a profound one, uh, in which he cleaned up his act. Uh, gone was the bad language. Gone was the sexually explicit stuff, by all accounts, not just out of his music, but out of his life. And the musician Questlove, you may have seen him on Jimmy Fallon's show. He's the leader of a, of a group called The Roots. Uh, he was, uh, before Prince died, he was in the studio with him, uh, playing drums. They were recording a song. And during that session, uh, Questlove said a swear word. And Prince stopped everything and said, you got to put money in my swear jar. There's no swearing in the studio. And Questlove, you know, responded to that by saying, Prince, I wouldn't even know that word if it wasn't for you. <laughs> and what he describes next is, I think, pretty poignant. He said, when he said that, Prince's mood really changed. He got very quiet. Uh, in fact, he said, you know, he seemed ashamed. He went on to share that he felt like Prince spent the last 20 years of his life trying to atone for the damage he felt he'd done, not only in his personal life, but in the culture. Uh, quietly investing himself in philanthropy in the hopes of trying to somehow repair the damage that he felt he'd done. You know, Questlove saw in that brief interaction more than, you know, a man in emotional pain. He saw a man really burdened with the task of paying for the damage he felt he'd done. And, and you know, here's the thing. That story about Prince, I think, is everybody's story. You know, we've got a sense of the damage we've done. And, and we feel the damage that has been done to us. Uh, we carry that around in such a way, you know, that it's, it's never fully healed. You know, and we try to pay for the pain that we can never fully undo. You know, and, and what are we desperate for? We are desperate for true, lasting liberating forgiveness in a sense that the payment is over. It's been made. When we do damage at our best, we try to make it right by apologizing, by seeking restoration. You know, maybe not at our best. When we don't do that, we just carry it around, right? Guilt, shame, grudges, anger. But running through, you know, the entire range of possible responses to 
damage done, damage received, is the reality of this, the payment. You know, we either make the payment ourselves or we make someone pay. Um, let me just use an easy example. Let's say you've been slandered. Uh, you know, what do you do with that? You have, a, you, have a, you have a range of possible responses to that, don't you? Uh, you can slander them back. You know, you can let every note, one note, you know, bad words have been spoken about you. Well, guess what? They're not so great either. And let me tell you what a rat they are. You know, and what is that? You're making them pay. You've been hurt and they're going to pay. But let's say you're noble, you know, and you decide to forgive and you seek restoration. You know, then, what are you do- then what are you doing? Um, when you forgive them, you're paying. You're absorbing it. You're saying, I'm going to pay for your sin against me. But here's the thing, you know, I mean, in, in all of it, why do we even have any sense of this at all? Why, why is there a sense that, that someone's got to pay? That something must be done, that we're always kind of, you know, altering and adjusting, you know, trying to right the ship, relationally, internally, and every, in every other way. Why do we lapse into deriding the wretch over there one minute and defending ourselves the next? I remember, I remember reading, you know, this old Puritan who was just talking about the angstiness of all this, and he, he had this prayer, it was like, oh, to be a horse. He just looked at a horse one day, and he goes... Horses don't have the angst. They're not trying to get right with the universe. They are content in their horsedness. But we are not content in our humanness. Why? Why do we carry in us this ongoing need to be righted with our conscience, with others, with the universe, whatever? Here's why, I think. Because for all there is to say about our relationships with others, Every single human being, all of us, share in common, share a common relationship. And that is the relationship with the God who made us. You know, if you're not a Christian, don't think that you don't have a relationship with God. You do. We all do. We all are in relationship with Him in some way. We all have some apprehension, if it's, even if it's hazy and unspoken and undefined, that we've got to be right with him. In the same way that if you're in some kind of conflict with a, a friend of yours, you know, you carry with you that sense of needing to be right, you know, reconciled. So what is, whether you're consumed by striving to be right or consumed with shame because you feel wronged, that is connected with the fact that we are all in relationship with him. We can never fully absorb in ourselves or achieve enough in ourselves to get right with God. The sin is too deep, it's too damaging, it's too imperfective. But here, here's the beauty of what Jesus says about the kind of Savior he is. Here's where it comes into focus. We can't do it. And in fact, if we're honest, we won't do it. But he says here, I can and I will and I must. He's the Savior who suffers and dies, not passively, but with purpose. He's the Savior who absorbs in himself the consequences for our sin, achieving by himself a rightness we never could, not for himself, but for us. He steps in and does that, steps into our suffering and declares, I must suffer, steps into the doom and declares, I must die. 
He endures what we could never endure in the suffering that should be ours for sin, and he receives the recompense that should have been ours for our sin and dying for us. We must do that. We need forgiveness. He says, I must suffer. And, and, and hear the grace in that. That is the same as saying, not you, not anymore. You're not going to suffer in the same way anymore, and you're not going to die when your faith is in me. He's the only one who's strong enough to take the punishment I deserve. Not only is he strong enough, he's holy. He didn't sin, I did. He stands in to take the hit I deserved for that sin. Now Mark tells us, he, he, he says these things plainly. He's plain spoken. Not only, you know, and, and in fact, he's not just plain spoken, he's quite detailed. I don't know if you noticed that. Not only about the fact that he must die, but he, he gets into some detail about the fashion in which he must die. He's very specific about the kind of death he'll die, which makes you wonder, you know, why is that? Why, why could Jesus not just have lived to a good old, you know, good long life and die of natural causes for our sin? Why not die in battle for our sin? Why not get thrown into a volcano for our sin? Why is it necessary that he die in the way he did? Well, we do well to see that he speaks not only of his death, but with some specificity about how he's detained. And, and, and it's actually quite important. You see, what's important about being detained in this way, not dragged off by some crazy mob, but instead, re, Jesus says, rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes to be killed, is this, the law is followed. Officials carry out official duties with official warrants, doing what they understand to be their duty, doing it actually what they believe to be in the cause of justice, in the cause of good civic order, in the cause of piety, in the cause of peace. This, this won't be some crazy flash mob outburst of violence. It will in fact be carried out by the noblest religious and civic jurisprudence in all of humanity up to that time and maybe ever. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because of this. It shows that humanity's very best attempts at kingdom building are utterly inadequate, wholly broken, and fall far short of the glory of God. One writer put it this way, in condemning Jesus, the world condemns the very best of itself. And in so doing, you know, the utter sinfulness of sin is shown so that when Jesus is handed over to the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and ultimately the Romans, the world is really revealed for what it is that, you know, and its kingdoms for what they are. So Jesus willingly took the very worst of what the world could dish out under the auspices of its very best in terms of religious authority, political authority, and that resulted in his death. But not just in his death, critically, his resurrection. He speaks of his resurrection, of rising three days later. He endured the worst punishment possible, but it didn't end him and it didn't end his kingdom. And, and, and there is nothing that has more profound implications for those whose faith is in Jesus than the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. It means 
you know, that whatever threatens is no longer a threat. It means you don't have to be scared anymore. Paul has an extensive meditation on the importance of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. I'd, I'd encourage you to go read it this afternoon. But, but suffice to say now that, that it is the reality of the resurrection that we're told has put all things in subjection to him. All things. All things that bruise and break us. Your financial strain is under subjection to him. Relational brokenness is in subjection to him. Sickness is in subjection to him. Anxiety, insecurity, all of it is under him because Jesus has been raised from the dead. The resurrection means that you can face the very worst that the world can bring at you because the death and resurrection of Jesus shows us that even the last and greatest enemy, which is death, no longer threatens. It has been defeated. So the well-worn script of the human story that we live and we die actually becomes a different script. We live and we die and we live. The Son of Man must die. And Jesus doesn't merely insist that this is God's way of salvation. In verse 34, I don't want to miss this, he invites you to it. He invites you into resurrection life. In fact, he, he doesn't just speak it to Peter or his disciples. He calls the crowd around to, to him at this point. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus must, must go to the cross for our salvation. And if you want to go, if you want to follow him, you must go there as well. I must go there. We've got to go to the cross. But what does that mean? What does it mean to go to the cross? Jesus explains that too. He explains it in this way. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save us, will save it. There's three words used in the New Testament for life. Uh, there's bios, there's zoe, being kind of the two most common. But Jesus uses the rarer word here. He uses the third word. That, the word is psyche. Uh, it's the word from which we derive our word psychology. Uh, psyche, unlike bios and zoe, describes life not so much in terms of existence or our activity. It describes it in terms of kind of personhood, identity, the, the uniqueness of who God has made you to be. And at first it seems, you know, when, because Jesus is talking about losing your life in order to gain it, and, and when you see that that's what he means, is, you know, the first thought is, well, is Jesus asking me to lose my sense of individuality, my sense of personhood, my identity? Well, in fact, no, it's the exact opposite. He's still talking about the reality of the resurrection, and here's what's true about any resurrection. In order to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. You've got to have a death first. And, and Scripture often conveys resurrection life uh, using this analogy. It describes it as, as something like a seed falling into the ground. You know, maybe some of you are gardeners, and you, you know what that's like. You dig a hole, and you put the seed in, and, you know, you won't see it for weeks. It looks dead. Even as you hold it in your hand, it just looks like a little husky, you know, what's, what is this thing? It's like a seed falling into the ground, and all the world, it looks dead and buried until it sprouts, and it bears fruit. That's the kind of death Jesus is calling his people to in going to the cross, but it's not a death to, to identity. It's not a death to personhood. It's, a, it's death to sin. It's death to the old way of living. 
It's death to the self-saving ways. Not, not that the self would be obliterated, but so that it would be opened up like a seed. Like a seed opens up and flourishes. So that you see things that you didn't even know were in that little seed. And look, we're all trying to open up our lives, aren't we? I mean, that's kind of the whole human project. Through what we, what we achieve, what we receive, what we believe. I was in Texas a few weeks ago and I saw a motivational sign posted in a window in a, in a convenience store, and it just said, strive to be the best version of yourself. Now, that's kind of interesting, you know, the idea that we've got versions of ourselves that we can cultivate and create and try to be the best of that. But, you know, I think, I think that's a fairly accurate, you know, embodiment of kind of what we're all about. We're all striving. We're all trying to be the best of ourselves, and we're, and we're doing that in all kinds of ways through professional success and financial gain and our reputation and a well-managed family and good physical health and all that. And all those things, all those activities, Jesus, you know, um, kind of describes in verse 35, he puts it all under the heading of this, saving your life. That's, that's what we're doing. We're trying to save our life. We're trying to open it up. And the irony is that a commitment to deriving your life in that way, trying to save your life, you know, is the surest way to lose it. You know, the more we try to build a life on the foundation of us saving it for ourselves by way of career, relationship, reputation, achievement, children, all those things, the more true selfhood and life slips our grasp. And the, and the reason is, because we're seeds. We're seeds made for sprouting with life in God. We're, we're, we're not suns, we're moons. We don't radiate life out of ourselves. We reflect it from the God for whom we were made, who is light. We weren't made to have life in ourselves. We weren't made to save our own life. We were made for life in Him. And so Jesus says, die to that way of living that you may live. John D. Rockefeller was not only one of the wealthiest people of his day, he was one of the wealthiest people in human history. At the height of his wealth, uh, he, his personal wealth comprised roughly 2% of the GDP of the United States, if you can imagine. And at one point, you know, I mean, people were aware of his wealth, and a reporter asked him, you know, hey, man, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's the statement of someone trying to be the best version of themselves. That's the statement of someone trying to save his own life. It's never enough. And it's what Jesus urges us to die to in order that we might live. And it's why he doesn't say, you know what, you guys could use a little modification, a little reshuffling of the priorities. Can, can, can you make it to church a little more often? You know, can you, can you adjust your attitude he doesn't say any of that. He says you need to die. We need to die so that we can experience this life, resurrection life in him, a secure identity, not a slippery one, a satisfying one that frees us from the, the soul-killing task of trying to make a life for ourselves by giving us a life that doesn't have to be earned by us and can never be lost. And here's one other thing I just want to notice, and this is, you know, just the potency of grace. Jesus says you must lose your life for his sake and for the gospel. 
I love that he doesn't just say, you know, lose your life for my sake. He, he, he doesn't just say, live for me. And I think he doesn't say that because he knows how addicted we are to self-saving. He knows that, that merely saying live for me would merely shift the self-saving energies to something that sounds a lot more noble. Live for Jesus. But it would be a life of trying to secure life and identity by performance if that's all he said. You know, what would Jesus do? But he doesn't just say that. He doesn't provide us with one more performance metric. And by the way, a, a very hard to live up to performance metric. Just be like Jesus? No. He doesn't say merely live for me, noble as that may sound. He doesn't give us one more performance metric. He says, lose your life for my sake and the gospel. What he's saying in that is he is urging us to lose our life of self-saving, our life of personal performance for the good news of saving by the performance of another. That's the gospel. Life through the life of another. Jesus Christ, who by grace takes the punishment I deserve but could never bear. Jesus Christ, who gave me a righteousness and a life that I could never earn but desperately need. Die to yourself and live for him and the gospel, the good news. Lose your life and latch on to, the king, to King Jesus by faith. Find your life in the King who went to the cross so that you may live. Relish and rely on the reality that Jesus lost everything for me so that I could gain everything in him. The life or death, sort of all-in nature of this, I think is, you know, really encapsulated in this confrontation with Peter. When Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him, Jesus doesn't say, you know, Peter, you're, you're misunderstanding me. Peter, why are you so angry? Peter, you're really disappointing me. You're being really rude. He calls him Satan. That's Jesus' response to Peter's rebuke. His opposition to the necessity of Jesus suffering and dying has, has, is put squarely in opposition to God's plans and purposes in Christ. And, and he's saying, you know, Peter, you can't say I'm king in one breath and then oppose my agenda in the next. To, to go on insisting on your own agenda is not merely to disagree with him. It is to defy him. It is to declare yourself king. The only posture one can have before the king is the bent knee, the bowed head, the not my will but yours be done. Je Jesus will not be your savior unless he is also your sovereign. And, and look, I, I understand surrender can be a very scary thing. Some of us have surrendered to things and been burned. And, and here's the important thing, Jesus knows that about us. And he's very tender. The last word in our passage isn't one of command, it's one of comfort. Uh, he says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Now that's a statement that's puzzled a lot of people. There's a lot to say about it. But all I'll say about it now is it's a word of assurance. Uh, it's a word of assurance that, that the church has clung to with great hope, even, even long after those who heard it personally had gone to their graves. You know, that the kingdom of God is coming with power. And the assurance is this that even as this king and this kingdom may look to be weak and insignificant and doomed to fail as he makes his way to the cross, the cross is the glory. 
The cross is what opens up a whole new way to live. The cross is what, you know, enables you to lose your life that you could, so that you might find it. So you can surrender to this king because Jesus, unlike all other kings, you know, um, gave his life for us and didn't demand our lives of us. He calls his people to take up our cross and die, die to the tyranny of self-salvation, self-kingship, die to the exhaustion of trying to secure a life for ourselves only to see that it's sucking the life out of us. He is far kinder and more gracious and more powerful ruler than any of us could ever elect or appoint or aspire to be. He's the only king who doesn't give your life to me in order that you may live and thrive, but instead says, I'll give my life for you in order that you may live and thrive. Not taking life, but giving. Not oppressing, but living, but liberating freely and forever. And because he has given himself utterly and completely, we can give ourselves to him without fear. He's the king who goes to the cross for his people, and this is his table. And he invites us to it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your kingship is indeed a liberating one. Uh, not one that crushes us, but one that liberates us, one that sets us free uh, because you have given yourself as a ransom for sin for many. And so we want to come to this table with some apprehension of that. Uh, and, and, and I want to say an appreciation that we don't come up here, you know, making resolutions. We don't come up here leaving offerings all in the hopes that your smile would be upon us. But we know that in Christ, your smile is upon us. Uh, that it is secure, that by faith um, we are no longer orphans and strangers, but have been made sons and daughters of the living God, and, and we have received an inheritance of grace. And so as we take this meal, you're gracious to dwell with us in it, and you're gracious to remind us through this sacrament uh, that you gave yourself for us that we might live. So Lord, would we come full of faith, um, trusting in you, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.